all right let's let's explain to people then how you came to join up with the cia yeah so the agency does a lot of different types of hiring they go to career fairs they go to job fairs they go to college fairs they have an open website and what people don't realize is like 90 percent of what the cia does is not undercover at all you can go be a logs officer. You can go be a, a janitor if you want to be. You can be a science and technology like tech officer. And a lot of those are just totally open. You your tax statement says CIA. You drive to the CIA headquarters building, right? You can wear a CIA T-shirt on the weekends. It's only about ten percent of us that go undercover, and that was where I was. And that recruiting is a little bit different. So for me, they found me when I was trying to go full blown hippie, trying to transition from the military into the Peace Corps. All I wanted was like a nice hippie chick with hairy armpits to travel Africa with me saving children. And they intercepted me on that path and brought me into the dark side. <laughs> and then you met your wife through this work. Yeah. And then so it I wasn't met all my, dark side. It wasn't all dark side. Yeah. <laughs> because she was also on her trajectory to the Peace Corps and she got intercepted also. So it was perfect. She just had shaved armpits, but that's okay. I can forgive <laughs> it. <laughs> Whenever I go anywhere in the world, nobody thinks I look American. And that's right. the key. The key to disguise is just not looking like what you really are. It's not about looking totally different. It's about breaking the profile so you don't look like what people expect. So in Asia and Latin America, in the Middle East and the Caucasus, I, I blend in beautifully. Nobody thinks I was a CIA intelligence officer ever. They think I was the help, but they don't ever think I was an intelligence officer. And something you and said that was very fascinating. Guys... Go ahead, go ahead. Something you said that was fascinating was you could sit right by friends of yours just a few feet away in one of your disguises. And because people are so focused on what they're doing, just an immediate like around them that they didn't even know you were there. Yeah. So there's three levels of disguise. And I was specifically talking about level two and level three disguise in that story. So level one disguise is just, you know, I, I don a pair of glasses or I wear a ball cap or I wear a high collar, right? That's all level one disguise stuff that you can just put on and take off easy enough, right? Break up the profile. Level two disguise is when you physically change some part of your body. So for, I've got this, whole giant head of hair back here. So I pull my hair back. That's level one disguise. If I cut this hair off and I start and I live a day in, in your shoes, Sean, with a bald head, right? Or I grow a long beard or I put some kind of like, I don't know, uh, henna tattoo on my face or something like that. That's level two disguise. I could live for an extended period of time, months with a bald head, a full beard and henna on my face. And I would not look anything like this right now. So level two disguise is still natural, but it's long-term. You want to go into six months undercover. You want to go two years in a different alias. That's how you do it. You don't wear prosthetics for two years. You just physically change your, your look. Level three disguise is all the store-bought stuff that you see on TV and in the movies. That's your prosthetic nose and your contact lenses, your fake ears, your black teeth. That's your fat suit, right? Or you're, uh, or you're sticking stuff in your shoes to, give, to make you two inches taller. That's the really advanced stuff that you see in Mission Impossible, but that stuff doesn't survive extreme temperatures. If you're in the Middle East where it's hot, if you're in, in, the, in Siberia where it's cold, uh, if you're someplace really wet, that's the kind of stuff. It's going to fall off your face and you're going to get caught looking like a fool in front of all the wrong people. <laughs> so you said then that it's quite um, civilized, the world of espionage versus the danger portrayed by Hollywood. 
you analogized it to soldiers, you know, want to wipe each other out on the battlefield, but you guys want to catch each other, like find out who's who, and then just follow that person discreetly and gather intelligence. And, you know, just, it's not in your interest to kill your rivals. Correct. Yeah. I liken it to a chess game, right? So people think of chess as a game where you're trying to kill the other person's players. And that's true in the military world. And that's true when you look at chess at the surface level. But really, the people who win in the game of chess are not the people who make the most right moves. It's the people who make the least wrong moves. If you make the least mistakes, you're going to win out on the chessboard. That's the world of intelligence. We try to go head to head against the best, most proficient intelligence services in the world and make the least mistakes. If you make the least mistakes, the other person basically falls on their sword and you're going to have superior information, superior positioning, superior relationships, and you win the day. So despite you saying that then, what was your hurriest moment? Oof, man. I, I would say that there were times when I was traveling abroad and I knew for sure that I, was, that I had a tail, that I was under surveillance. And that's terrifying because when you're under surveillance, you know that they know you're something other than who you say you are. And you have to make a decision, right? You have to make a decision. Do you, do you try to lose them? Do you keep them and drag them somewhere other than where, where your operational meeting is going to happen? Or do you just cancel the whole thing and basically go home empty-handed? And that's all, I mean, all three of those are constantly playing through your head along with all the other one-offs. Like, what if I turn the corner and there's a, there's a border crossing and they just take me into custody? What if I end up in some empty prison cell, you know, sleeping on a hay mat and the U.S. has plausible deniability? They're never going to admit I am one of theirs, right? So all of these things are going through your head while you're also trying to execute. So I've had those moments happen abroad. Um, and then you take, you take the best action that you can take. Sometimes that's jumping in behind a corner, changing your profile quick and trying to duck out the other side before they can see you. And then, you know, you're blown, you know, you're burned. So the best you can do is just act on your act, act on your operational objective and then get the hell out of country. Uh, and sometimes you drag them off and sometimes you take the risk of going to jail. So those are crappy moments, man. Nobody likes asking themselves those questions. So are you trained then for the eventuality of being captured and tortured? Yes, you're trained for the eventuality of being captured. Torture is one of those things that nobody, everybody turns a blind eye to it. Um, but when you go into certain places, you know that the likelihood is high. So you're taught what's known as resistance techniques. It's not that different from what the military learns in SEER school. Uh, so yeah, you're, you learn how to maintain health and mental health and fitness in small confined spaces. I actually have one of my most popular YouTube videos is me walking people through my own escape workout, what I would do if I was penned into a five foot by three foot cell. Um, and I can show people exactly how we maintain our health and fitness. But then you have a mental barrage of exercises to keep yourself mentally sharp and you find a way to increase your pain tolerance. And I talk about pain tolerance on my website to teach people how to increase that pain tolerance through their neural connections and how their cognitive mind processes pain. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. Before we continue with your story, then let's tell the viewers a bit about your YouTube channel. We've got the link in the description box below this video. So what kind of content are you posting over there? And which videos have got the most views? Yeah, so I've got a couple of, uh, I've got some videos over there that are super popular that have to do with the, the technical skills of spying, how to build a cover, how to defend your cover, how to find out when someone's lying at lying to you. 
Uh, I've got information there on basic encryption and encoding, uh, intermediate encryption and encoding. And then I've got a bunch of stuff that's just me and my life. I'm a private intelligence officer still. So I don't work for CIA. I work for private contracts, private clients around the world. So I kind of take folks on that travel with me and walk them through what am I doing today? What am I doing tomorrow? What's this life look like? Uh, and what's the life not look like since COVID, right? But that's the purpose of YouTube. Everything about Everyday Spy is to teach people spy skills that give you an unfair advantage in everyday life. Because that's what CIA gave me, an unfair advantage in the field and in everyday life. And nobody ever expects me to be former CIA. If I can give those skills to others, then I've just got to, that's defining the future leaders of the world. The people who know how to leverage their talents and their abilities in an unfair way to reach their objectives. Everybody else is just going to fail, but those few are going to win. And how useful is the Myers-Briggs personality test in all this? I love the Myers-Briggs personality test, man. My premier master course starts by just deep diving into Myers-Briggs and teaching you how to use it operationally. The stuff that you read about in like Cosmopolitan magazine and from, you know, amateur bloggers that are out there, they love talking about knowing yourself. Knowing yourself is less than 10% of the battle. That's, that's some baloney. All, that's all self-help, self-help guru garbage. You don't need to know yourself. You need to know how to use the skills that tell you about yourself to get into the head of other people. Because once you're in someone else's head, you predict their behaviors, you drive their outcomes, you control the day. You want them to hire you, you can get them to hire you. You want them to pay you more, you can get them to pay you more. You want them to charge you less, you can get them to charge you less. But you can't do that by thinking about my Myers-Briggs personality tells me that I'm sensitive and I'm an introvert. To hell with that, man. I want to know about the person sitting across from you. Yeah, so unlike the cops then, you profiled targets and then tried to win them over. What does that mean, win them over? So we talk in the agency about, about building rapport with scumbags, basically. So all the bad guys out there, whether they're, whether they're pedophiles, whether they're uh, future traitors, current traitors against their country, right? Terrorists, whatever they might be, uh, military dictators, they're all scumbags, but they're also all human beings. And at the core of every human being is a very simple formula that tells you what that person's motivated by. The same person who goes to work every day in, an, in a job that's unfulfilling, making $42,000 a year, that person is motivated by the same stuff as a dictator who sits on a throne, you know, executing dozens of people a day. Their motivations are the same, but how they execute on those motivations is different. So what we try to do at the agency, what CIA does in the world of human intelligence is understand profile the target you're trying to get secrets from understand them in a way that only very very few people understand them or even better understand them in a way they don't even understand themselves because that builds a level of trust and when you build trust with someone the next logical emotive step for them is to switch loyalty and if you can tr if you can get someone to trust you enough that they become loyal to you then you have access to everything they have access to that dictator becomes a dictator that's your puppet. That terrorist becomes a, a terrorist that's your puppet. And if you're working for CIA, they become a puppet for the CIA. And you've got a formula called RICE. Correct. Yeah, RICE is that core motivation formula, right? The RICE is an acronym, R-I-C-E. And it stands, the R stands for reward. The I stands for ideology. The C stands for coercion. And the E stands for ego. 
each of those four areas, rice, uh, reward, ideology, coercion, or ego, those are the four motivations that drive everybody in all cultures, all languages, all ages, all levels of education. The reason you're talking to me right now boils down to one of those four things. The reason I'm going to go home and take care of my kids this afternoon boils down to one of those four things. And when you understand that and you learn how to master that, pairing that with Myers-Briggs, like just to go back, Sean, if you understand someone's Myers-Briggs personality and you understand their core motivation, you've got the key to that person's every decision and you can direct them in whatever way you want them to go. So you're trying to win a target over then based on what you just said, but aren't competing countries also trying to win the same target over using the same techniques? How, how does one stay ahead in that game? That's exactly, that's the chess game, brother. That's what makes, that's what makes espionage a gentleman's battle. That's what we call it. A gentleman's game, a gentleman's battle, because I know that you are some nuclear scientist for some hostile country that America wants secrets from. And I know that I'm not the only person you're meeting with. There's at least four other Intel services, all trying to get one-on-one -on -one time with you, trying to get the same secrets, doing all the same things. So it's really a race, a race against time and a race against your own skill set. How far are you willing to push that relationship to get to the place where that person trusts you more than anyone else? And I just, I see you froze on me, Sean. Did you get that audio or do I need to repeat that? Um, you can keep going. You're fine. Yeah, just keep going. You're good. Yeah, man. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So that's, that's, how that, that's how that world works. And sometimes we step on each other's toes, right? Even between MI, MI6 and, and CIA, we step on each other's toes. We find ourselves chasing the same target and we're like, oh, I, I figured you would be interested in this person, but I didn't expect you to be meeting at the same restaurant where I'm meeting them. And it's embarrassing and it's not professional, but like that's the nature of the game sometimes. What about the role of blackmail then? So we saw in the Epstein case, many theories of the, it being a honey trap operation. Do you have any knowledge of anything like that? Yeah. So when it comes to the Epstein case specifically, I don't have any uh, inside knowledge, but here's, here's the dirty truth that Hollywood doesn't talk about with regards to blackmail. Blackmail falls under that coercion category. Remember in Rice, R-I-C-E, the C was coercion. When it comes to why people do things, coercion is the weakest motivator. It's the weakest reason. You can force someone to do pretty much anything, but it's, a, it's basically a one-time shot, right? Once they know that you're forcing them, they will never trust you. And if they never trust you, you'll never get their true loyalty. So it's kind of a one and done thing. So the reason that you see professional services avoid coercion is because they know if they employ that, they've lost the day. It, it's, a, it's a simple, pragmatic decision one time because they, they've lost the case after that. So we avoid that at all costs. So are you familiar with the work of Nick McKinley then, who we had on a couple of weeks ago, ex-CIA, and he now is going against the traffickers of human beings? Yeah, there's a number of, uh, of very uh, successful former CIA officers going against human trafficking. It's a, it's a super exciting thing to see. And what's your perspective on human trafficking? And do you have any stories from your own experience where you encountered it? Yeah, so human tra it's a sad world, right? And, uh, and I want to separate human trafficking in the United States, um, or really human trafficking in the Western world. I want to separate that from human trafficking in the rest of the world. 
because frankly speaking, look, I'm, I'm former CIA. You're allowed to hate me. You're allowed to disagree with me. You're allowed to not like what I have to say, but I'm always going to tell you the truth. The world outside of the Western world runs on sex trade. That's just the truth behind it. Human trafficking is alive and well because for many, many people in the world, it is a step up in their life to become a sex slave for some other country. Just think about that for a second. Would you rather be like poverty stricken in India, no ability to read, write, get clean water with a life expectancy of like 24? Or would you say yes to the person that drives through and says, hey, I'm going to sell you into slavery in Germany and you're going to live in the red light district, but 50% of the money you make, you can send back home to your family and you can use that to take care of everybody for multiple generations. There are many people in their life who look at that deal and say yes. And that is human trafficking. That is illegal. That is immoral. That is unethical in Western mindsets, but it is completely acceptable in their worldview, right? So I love it when people are committing their lives, their skills to fighting and combating human trafficking against, against people who are duped and lied to, especially in the Western world where there really is equal opportunity for all people. But I also have to understand in my experience in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, there are lots of people who volunteer themselves into that life to get out of even worse conditions. And that's, that's just the truth behind human trafficking. It's, it's unfortunate, but the sex trade has always been a lucrative trade. It's always been <clears throat> one of the most popular uh, services in the world, in the human, uh, in the entire human experience. That's really sad. And how does that compare then with human trafficking in America? Yeah, in America, it's really sad because what you end up having is a lot of uh, children that get stolen, children that get taken out of um, out of a condition where they they do have hope for a better future, and they are essentially pilfered and forced into a, a life of solitude and servitude. And that's not the same thing as what you see in a place like India or Thailand or Cambodia, where folks volunteer themselves into, into a scenario or a situation that they believe is better. Do you think the government should allocate more resources to combat that? That's a tricky one, right? Because here's, here's another dirty truth, Sean, right? Human trafficking is not a national security concern. It's just not. America, the UK, we're not, we're not at risk because of human trafficking. You're, the governments are not going to fail. Everyday citizens are not going to die because of human trafficking. It would take, it would take, a, ver- it would take a, a terrorist group or some sort of organized criminal uh, element to really uh, be innovative or ingenuitive to create a, a true threat from human trafficking. So because of that, the government is always going to underfund human trafficking efforts because it's never directly tied to national security interests and governments are practical, practical bodies. They're taking your tax dollars to make your life, you in an individual taxpayer, they're taking your money to make your life better. If human trafficking doesn't touch your life in some very specific dangerous way, they're not going to combat it. It's, it's always going to fall to the cutting room floor, much like the war on drugs, much like you know, data security and social, uh, and social media bullying, right? That's not going to be their problem. So out of all of the agencies then in America, is, does the CIA have the highest powers? So it's interesting that the, 
the professional term for powers is actually called authorities. We call them authorities in the U.S. And, and authorities are what grant you um, approval to do the operations or the activities that you participate in. In all of the agencies <clears throat> within the uh, IC, the intelligence community inside the USA, we actually divide those authorities among all the different IC partners. So CIA has certain authorities, but it also is missing other authorities. If anything, I would say the people with the highest authorities are actually our, our Customs and Border Patrol. They have authorities that CIA and NSA and FBI would kill for, but we don't, we're not given that authority. The only way we can take advantage of, of the kinds of activities that, cuss, that Border Patrol or FBI can take advantage of is if we partner with them in a joint mission or a joint operation, which is why you so often see joint missions and joint, uh, joint intelligence partnerships, because that's the only way that we can legally exercise the maximum amount of authority. On the flip side of that, then, does interagency competition sometimes sabotage efforts? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's called 9-11, brother, right? September 11th happened in the United States because, because silly, petty interagency conflict blocked a larger picture. Um, there's evidence coming out that the reason January 6th happened was because partnerships didn't work, right? Partnerships that were supposed to land on an intelligence threat didn't land on an intelligence threat. Actions weren't taken. Some actions were actively, you know, canceled. So intelligence failures are, are dangerous, embarrassing, humiliating, horrible events. But they happen, again, because human beings are human beings. Your kids don't want to play. They don't want to, your kids don't want to share toys. You don't really want your wife to eat the last piece of bread. It's the exact same way in the intelligence world. We don't want someone else to get the credit that we could get, especially if we've worked for it. And nobody wants to pay the bills at the end of the day for an operation that doesn't work. So sometimes we choose not to fund an operation at all and bad things happen. What is the purpose of the CIA? And in this modern high-tech world, how has its objectives and strategies changed? That's, uh, it's a good question, but I'll also say that it's a question that's probably been tainted by media, right? If you understand what the CIA does, CIA is the premier human intelligence collection agency against foreign intelligence for the United States. That mission has never changed. That mission will never change. The way that we collect foreign intelligence is not dependent on technology. In Hollywood, they make it look like technology is all powerful. And if you're, if you're watching advertisements from everyone from Microsoft to Apple to Tesla and SpaceX, they all want you to think that technology is the penultimate everything, right? But it's not. Human relationships, human exchange, that is the true engine behind all interaction, all innovation, and all growth. The reason technology is born is because human beings are sitting together somewhere building that technology. So just imagine that. Is it better to hack into a secure app like Signal or, or, uh, or WhatsApp, is it better to hack into it or is it better to simply recruit one of the engineers who's building it in the first place? <laughs> and once, yeah, once you ask yourself that question, it's very clear which, one's, which one you prefer. So CIA is not going anywhere. Technology can go to hell. It's gonna change, but the engineers building that technology will always be human beings. So you were asked about on concrete what I wrote about Barry Seal which was paraphrased to you by Danny there. And I found it interesting your answer was that there's always perhaps a grain of truth in conspiracy theories. And 
you've got to view the CIA from the perspective that it's it's the executive branch. Correct. So whoever's in charge of the government at that time could do whatever they want with it. That's exactly which right. Which opens it up to abuse potentially. Correct. And I would go a step further to say that that the abuse doesn't doesn't end at the executive level because you also have intelligence subcommittees and you have Congress people and you have other politicians vying for that executive position. So there's plenty of space for corruption. There's plenty of space for conspiracy. There's plenty of space for bad people to do bad things and try to cover it up. And that's why I, I will never be someone who poo-poos conspiracy theories because all a conspiracy theory is, is somebody being willing to ask a hard question that other people are avoiding. But the difference is if you start to, if you start to force information to fit your theory without acknowledging objective information contrary to your theory, that's how you start going down a rabbit hole that's unproductive. If you want to be productive and, and drive your conspiracy to a theory and drive your theory to a proven event, which has happened multiple times in history, right? It's about taking in all the information, comparing it objectively and adjust, adjusting your theory to make it more relevant and make it more appropriate to predominant evidence. So we've just got a couple of minutes left. And I started out asking you about fire, fire eye. The shares are down five, 6% right now in the stock market. And you've got a little story about FireEye. I've been watching it for a long time. It was almost $100 a share at one point, and it's been trading between 10 and 20 for a number of years now. Uh, what, what's your thoughts on the future of FireEye, which is a cybersecurity company for people who are watching this? I would invest, I would invest in FireEye in a heartbeat because FireEye, let me just, first of all, I know former colleagues of mine who have gone to work for FireEye, and I, would, I put my life on the line for them and they, they protected me. So all day long, if FireEye says they're gonna, they can do something, I would believe them. They're hiring. Right. Predicting human behavior then, how does one get into that and how accurate is it? Yeah, so it's in you. I'm gonna piss people off, Sean. I'm sorry. <laughs> Go for so it. The, in the professional world, in professional intelligence, professional espionage, even professional interrogation, it all starts from a baseline. That's the very first step because every human being is different. The way that we're culturally wired, the way that we're religiously wired, uh, our gender, our age, our level of experience, our level of education, our comfort in social settings, all of those little variables all play together on each individual to give us a specific baseline. And a baseline is kind of like your baseline heart rate or your baseline hearing. I'm sure you know what a baseline is in general, but when it comes to being able to read human behavior, re read faces, read inflection, read nervousness, you have to understand an individual's baseline first. So one of the first things that we're trained at CIA to do is observe, actively observe indicators of an individual's baseline. So just tying into what the previous guests said then, we were talking about Brendan Dassey and the read technique. And in the read technique, they talk about some body language patterns that indicate guilt, but it seems that the officers in that case didn't make allowances for this kid's learning disability and how withdrawn he was. So how, how do you draw a line there to allow for exemptions to the read technique? So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not very fluent in what the read technique is, but it sounds like we've got a perfect example here. Some 
of somebody who didn't apply professional baseline uh, assessment techniques into that interrogation. And now in, instead of being able to properly identify guilty behavior, what they did was they identified an individual who had learning disabilities and other, other uh, variables that were interpreted as signs of guilt. So, so I'm just going to, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep going, Sean. Keep so going, the, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the place to understand is that when you come into a one-on-one -on -one conversation, a one-on-one -on -one interrogation, uh, a one-on-one -on -one elicitation, uh, any kind of environment where you're, where you're going head to head against another human being, you have to, you have to start with your observation skills tuned in to observe baseline assessment behavior. What is this person's normal behavior? Right. So like a withdrawn child or a withdrawn adult that was a child with learning disabilities is going to have a baseline right away. They're going to have a baseline that's very consistent with who they are. That's the only thing you can do from that point forward, from the time you meet them is is determine the variance against whatever that baseline is and then determine if that variance is significant enough to be able to determine their guilt or their innocence, whether they're lying to you or not. But it all starts from there. So if a suspect has just been apprehended and you have no history with that person, how do you ascertain a baseline? Well, one of the first things you do is you take that person into some sort of protected area, right? You've heard of good cop, bad cop. You try to reduce the number of sensory inputs, take them away from bright lights, take them away from loud noises, take them away from other people, put them into an environment where it's just them and one or two interrogators or one or two uh, officers who are, who are asking questions. Right away, you have to immediately recognize that their heart rate is going to be up. Whether or not they're guilty or not, they're feeling threatened. They're physically confined. They've been pulled out of their comfort zone. So the baseline for them isn't going to be their normal day-to-day -day behavior, but it will be a standard deviation within a standard deviation of what that behavior is. Because now what you have is a stressed person and they will have a baseline of stressed activity. All of your listeners right now know what they are like when they are stressed out. And it's not the same thing as when they're not stressed out. So the most important thing is to observe, you know, are they fidgeting? Which arm are they fidgeting with? Are they already looking around before I ask questions? Are they sweating? Are they clammy? You know, are they breathing heavy? Are they mouth breathing or nose breathing? Uh, is their face flush? Is their skin flush around their neck? What can I see right now before I even start putting additional pressure on them? so that I can see what their baseline is right now. That's if you only have one chance to interrogate. If you're like, if you're like me and you're capturing bad guys in the desert and taking them to a secret prison for 15 days, you get multiple days of assessment, right? But if you only have one chance, you have to consider that. So the people then that are your competitors in the spy world, I imagine they have the same level of knowledge as you about these techniques. If they are captured, are they already trained in ways to counter those techniques? Yeah, exactly right. It's called counter interrogation. Yes, sir. Uh, so we have counter inter interrogation techniques and they're very useful, as, of course, in the undercover world because you learn how to counter an interrogation. You learn how to throw a baseline so that people don't know what your baseline truly is. Uh, but the same kind of techniques are actually really valuable in everyday life too, which is why I teach counter interrogation through everydayspy.com. But the objective here is essentially to, to observe the behavior of your interrogator and pull assessment data from their behavior faster than they can pull assessment data about your baseline. So it's kind of a cat and mouse game where 
you know your level of training, but they don't know your level of training. Uh, so you see who can, it's a race to the finish for who can get the other person's baseline and who can assess the other person best. So what would they draw on them? Would, would it be like breathing techniques, visualization? Could they alter, you know, the biorhythms, the heartbeat th through these methods? Uh, to a certain extent. So a lot of what you use in counter interrogation is something known as stress inoculation. Have you heard of stress inoculation, no. Sean? So stress inoculation is when you take somebody and you, and you put them into an artificially stressful environment. So that's just like you take an inoculation for a virus. Oh, look at that. Hey, let's make a plug for COVID. You take an inoculation to reduce the, uh, reduce the impact of the virus on you. It's the same way when you stress inoculate. You're basically applying artificial stress to reduce the impact of real stress when it happens. So some of our training includes being, uh, being captured, being detained, being interrogated, uh, putting ourselves through survival training, putting ourselves in the field when we know that there's a surveillance team behind us. These are all artificial stressors that are inoculating us for the field before we go and execute in the real world, right? Uh, I see somebody on here made a comment like, it's like pretend torture. Yes, that's exactly right. The first time that you get tortured, you don't want that to be the first time you've ever been tortured. Trust me, you would much rather have somebody else cause you pain who you trust before you're ever in a situation where someone's causing you pain who you don't know. That's the power of stress inoculation. So did you have to go through that? Have someone taught you who you trusted? Yeah, it's uh, to us. So there's there's rules in the American military, the American intelligence infrastructure. There's rules as to how much or how little people can touch you or cause you pain or cause you discomfort. Um, but there is absolutely like we've we've been exposed to extreme heat, extreme cold uh, temperature changes. We've been, uh, you know, you go without food, sleeping outside for multiple days on end with insects eating at you you know, all of those kinds of things. We don't pull fingernails because those don't really heal very well and we don't break bones, uh, but we certainly do things where we simulate heat with electronic, um, electric pulses. So instead of actually being burned by a branding iron, you basically get a zap of a certain frequency so that it feels like you're being burned. Uh, those are the kinds of tools that we can use in the entire defense uh, uh world, whether it's military or special operations, tier one or, or intelligence to help people get a sense of what it would be like in the field to actually go hungry or actually be uh, sleep deprived. You have to experience it to know. So if a spy is captured in the field, what is the likelihood that an interrogation would include torture? Uh, it's, it's unlikely. Um, generally speaking, the spy world is a very it's a very cloak and dagger world, right? So the, in almost any case, well, if you're dealing with a third world intelligence service, basically if you get captured on the continent of Africa by anybody other than the Nigerians or the South Africans, now all of a sudden your, your like enhanced interrogation techniques, borderline torture is almost guaranteed because you're gonna be put into a, a prison cell that's open to the elements. You're gonna have, you know, venomous insects and venomous you know rodents that are in the cell with you like that's that's some scary stuff that is that is not at all what you have in a first world uh a first world prison cell where you're safe from the elements and you're safe from you know immediate danger like like poisonous spiders and snakes um but but to kind of to expand on that 
the you're almost guaranteed in the intelligence world that the first thing you're going to come into contact with is gentle interrogation, right? What's known as was soft or friendly interrogation. They're going to work to negotiate an exchange of information before they go and make anything really forceful or hard. Uh, and that's why you saw that the U.S. had these secret prisons everywhere, because the first step is soft interrogation and soft interrogation takes weeks. It's the slow removal of comforts over time to slowly break down an individual while giving them a chance to build a relationship where they trust the interrogator. If you don't give them that time, because a, a, an informant who trusts you is worth infinitely more than an informant who feels threatened by you and will simply say whatever they have to say to get out of that threatening environment. So did you ever get in any scrapes that could have landed you in dodgy foreign prisons? Yeah, uh, we get into a lot of scrapes that can land us in them. And part of the professional training is to make sure you don't get caught. So I was fortunate. My training worked. I was never captured. I was never caught. Uh, I had a couple of, you know, what we call hot pursuits. Hot pursuits aren't quite what you see in TV. <laughs> but we did have a couple of hot pursuits where we were able to, you know, get out of the vicinity, get out of a jurisdiction safely, um, even though we thought that we may have been had. But yeah, fortunately for me, the the most pain I've ever felt was, if, you know, at the hands of special trained operators for CIA and DOD. Can we just zoom into that a little bit then? How did you know that it had gone wrong and you had to extricate yourself? So there's a, there's a lot that goes to answering that question, right, man? So in the professional world, um, in the professional intelligence world, we're all trained with detection techniques, lie detection techniques, surveillance detection techniques, um, misinformation detection techniques, these techniques, these skills that we have where we can see what's happening as it's unfolding. So it's kind of like uh, if you've ever watched your spouse or your parents, I... I love watching my mom actively get bamboozled. It's the easiest thing to see, right? You watch a salesman talk to your mother. You watch a salesman talk to your stepdad or your father or one of your siblings. And you can see like the dude's stroking my mom's ego. He's feeding her a line. He's telling her what she wants to hear. You know, he's, he knows that he's going to close a sale because my mom is still giggling and playing with her hair, right? You can see that in your in people who are close to you because you know their baseline so well. So that's, that's the kind of technique that we're taught to spot in, in other people or in the environment immediately. So I can tell when I'm under surveillance within about 25 or 35 minutes, depending on how, how, um, how dense the urban area is around me. I can run a surveillance detection route that is a planned route with intentional turns and intentional actions that determine whether or not that help me determine whether or not I'm under surveillance. And then once I know if I'm under surveillance, I know exactly what to do to count how many surveillance are behind me. What are their vehicles? What are their license plates? What are their physical, uh, you know, what is their physical uh, description? And then do they follow me over a certain period of time? Do they follow me over a certain period of days? So once you know whether or not you're under surveillance, that's kind of the first step to knowing what to do next. But then on, on top of our own individual detection techniques, we also have the fact that intelligence is a team sport. The movies make it look like spies are individual operators. In reality, it's a team sport. So I've got NSA colleagues who are listening to phone calls and radio chatter. I've got, you know, Department of, uh, Department of Defense, Department of State, Department of Treasury who are watching money and watching numbers and watching, you know, uh, associated or um, known associates to see what their behaviors are at a certain time as it pertains to my operation. So a lot of times we'll get a tip. 
hey, you know, there's telephone chatter between these two points or these two individuals who are known associates of your target. And it looks like they're going to be, you know, converging on a similar location or a similar path to where you'll be at this time. We think you might be blown or we think you might be at risk. Or, you know, the information, the intel tells us that something big is about to happen. So we need to expedite the operation so you can be there at the point when whatever the, the drug shipment occurs or the handshake happens or the agreement happens. So you've really got to know uh, who your team is, what your resources are at your disposal, plus have your own detection techniques down pat, because in the moment, you're the only one that can tell yourself what your level of security is. Have you then got to behave as if you don't know you're under surveillance? Because if they know, you know, there's a risk they may snatch you. Yeah, that's an excellent, excellent observation, Sean. So we call that, we call that um, surveillance aware behavior. So there's nothing you want to do. There's nothing as bad when you're running any kind of surveillance detection route. There's nothing as bad as appearing like you are surveillance aware or surveillance trained. Surveillance trained means you're doing things intentionally so that your surveillance team will make a mistake and show themselves to you. That means if you, if you look like you're surveillance trained, people are going to, you know, they're, they'll increase the number of people following you. They'll change vehicles. They'll do something different to make it more complicated. If you look like you're surveillance aware, that means that you are aware that someone is following you and you're just trying to figure out who that person is. And sur professional surveillance teams absolutely hate that because it's a, it's a, it's a spit like you're spitting on their forehead, you, you are being disrespectful of their tradecraft. And when you're doing that, you, if you're under surveillance, you know, you're basically in their territory, they can control the environment, they can call in additional resources, they can drop a drone on you, they can call in local police, they can have somebody wrap you up. So the last thing you want to do is make your own surveillance team angry, because just like you said, they'll just take you down and and let the police or let that, you know, windowless prison cell break you because they don't have to keep chasing you for the next three days. And how easy is it to get out of a situation when it gets to the point where they know, you know, uh, the goal is to never get to a place where they know, you know, it's all, it's infinitely easier to get out of a place where they have, you know, where they're unsure or where they have, uh, where they're not, you know, not a hundred percent certain that that uncertainty rule beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know, you heard, you've heard about that in the US uh, court system. Yeah, We always want there to be a shadow of a doubt where they're like, we're pretty sure that guy's CIA. Oh, but maybe like we want them to have that, that little bit of like, we're not, a, it's not, it's not a sure thing. We don't know for sure, for sure. As long as you have that uncertainty on your side, uncertainty principle takes effect and you have a distinct advantage that they don't have because you know the truth. You know what your training is. You know that you're CIA. You know what you're capable of. You know that you're just waiting for the right time or place to, to affect your uh, escape and evasion plan. And they don't. So that's a, that's a massive edge. Even if you're handcuffed, blindfolded, and you know, 24 hours without water, that's a massive edge that you have over everyone else if you know who you are and they don't. In your career, what do you believe was your best application of predicting human behavior? Perhaps you could give an example of crimes that were prevented. Yeah, so a lot of the ops that uh, we take a lifetime secrecy agreement that prevents us from talking about our specific operational background. So gotcha. there's not a lot that I can go into there. And I'll also say that, you know, I know that you focus on true crimes 
technically international espionage isn't really criminal behavior unless you're a, a citizen of the country where you are spying. So for example, me being a spy inside the United States isn't illegal. Me being a spy inside Spain is illegal. So it's kind of one of those things where I'm not really stopping crimes. I'm committing the crime on foreign territory so that I can bring home, you know, secrets that Americans use to stay safer. So it's a little bit of a, of a flip there. So I would say that my application was never necessarily to prevent a crime, but to commit a crime. Uh, and some of our big, some of my personal big victories all had to do with convincing convincing patriots of their country, right? Just like we have American patriots, there's Chinese patriots, there's Russian patriots, there are, uh, you know, Congolese patriots and French patriots, everybody who is in a trusted position of access for their country, where they're within the national security infrastructure, protecting the long-term well-being of their citizens, those are all patriots, right? When you can convince a patriot to essentially trans transfer their loyalty from their country to you, that's the first step in getting them to transfer their loyalty from you to your country instead. When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Koro Snacks. Koro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to the customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and of course the snacks. And the energy balls are delicious. Oh, they're my favourite, the salted pistachio. Ooh. Um, can't wait to have this this morning. Let's see what this one tastes like. Cheers. Cheers. Mmm. <laughs> mmm. So what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Their bulk packaging allow them to offer their customers high quality products at a fair price. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. And every CIA asset out there is essentially a human being who made the transition from saying, I am loyal to my country, to then say, I am lo more loyal to this individual, and then I am more loyal to. CIA or USA, who that individual works for. That's a very difficult transition to make. Those two steps are quite hard. And it's all about being able to understand their behavior and then predict their response to certain inputs that you're going to put in their, in their path. It's a lot like sales, uh, except it's kind of sales with a, with a higher ratio of success to death. Wow. Fascinating. One of the viewers has posed a question for you. That is, why do you teach these techniques coming from the CIA? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's kind of two answers to that. So the first is when I left CIA, CIA is kind of like leaving the mafia or I've never left the mafia. So what I understand <laughs> of leaving the mafia is what it's like to leave CIA. They don't help you. They don't, they don't acknowledge you existed with them. You have a, a lifetime non-disclosure agreement that prevents you from talking about your own operational background and they kind of cut you loose. If you choose to leave without retiring, they just cut you loose. And they're like, okay, good luck, right? You, you, you were off the grid for eight years, 12 years, 15 years, and now you don't want to be part of us. So we don't play nice. So you go ahead and you go try to make a living if you can, which is part of their retention technique uh, to keep people in. 
Wow. But, uh, but so when I left, I, I basically went unemployed for like six months. My wife is also former CIA. She didn't have a job either. We were two of the, of the best trained, most, you know, successful individuals in our career categories. When we were with CIA, we had done awesome things. We had multiple degrees, but we had this eight year blank on our resumes that nobody was willing to like, nobody was willing to consider us a viable asset for their, for their uh, company because we couldn't answer the simple questions. We were still sworn to secrecy with CIA. We couldn't acknowledge who we were until they, until CIA gave us permission to say we were ex CIA. So we were like in this awkward transition where we're like, well, what can we say? What can we do? If you try to call our, our references on our resume, nobody answers the phone. And the only way that we were able to find our way into a job was by applying the same techniques we learned at CIA into the job industry. We just started networking and making contacts and having, having deliberate dialogue, which is a tool that we used at CIA and having uh, using conversational mapping to get to a specific output to predict human behavior and, and drive certain inputs that we knew would have certain outputs until we got to the place where we were, you know, offered $90,000 a year jobs. So that was all CIA skills in everyday life. And once we had that happen to us, it was crystal clear, like people need to learn how to do these skills. We're not, this isn't violating national security to teach people how to shortcut the work system. It's not violating national security to teach people how to increase their personal defense. You know, giving people awesome experiences where they learn a better way to shoot, a better way to drive, a better way to use uh, passcodes and code words. Like this is not violating any kind of risk to national security to equip people to a higher level. So that's why we teach CIA skills to everyday people. And then the second half of the answer to that question, Sean, I'm sorry to be so, so verbal, right? The second reason is because freaking bad guys will always exist. There's always going to be bad dudes and bad places doing bad things. And as long as they're the only ones that know how to use these skills, good people are at a disadvantage. The only way that a good person is ever going to rise to meet the occasion of a, of a bad guy trying to steal from them or hurt them or hurt their family is if they know the same skills the bad guy knows and they have learned it with a professional. So that's the other reason why we teach CIA skills to everyday people. Well said. So going back to predicting human behavior, then when it comes to detecting lies, is that all, you know, observing body language or are there other variables? There's definitely other variables. So if you, the, the real, the real power in, in lie detection isn't with physical observation. Um, and I know there are people who have written books and who have, you know, made their tour on the Oprah Winfrey show, uh, trying to talk about it. Right. But the fact is, if you, if you are, let's talk about like FBI interrogation specialists, right? FBI only really ever interrogates Americans. That's it. And then you can even break that down further. They really only interrogate American criminals or people who have had some kind of behavior. The people they're really trying to catch are criminals who are American. And then you can, they have multiple subsects underneath there of, you know, what's the typical criminal look like? FBI operates in specific geographic regions. So they specialize in one geographic region. So now all of a sudden it's like, you know, it's very easy to understand the culture and the baseline behavior of a group of people who are within 80 miles of Biloxi, Mississippi, where you specialize, right? And that's, and that's what makes people, that's what makes FBI especially 
so comfortable saying, oh yeah, you can just see, you know, if the person's sweating, if the person's looking to the left, if the person's doing this, or if they're twiddling their thumbs, if they're, if they're bouncing their leg too fast, clearly they're lying. That's, that's not true on a global scale. If you want to look and defeat a lie or, or detect a lie in any language, any age, any education level, it's not about how they physically behave. It's about identifying gaps in their cognitive reasoning. So in order to do that, you have to engage them in some kind of conversation that you control. That's the real trick to lie detection. What about making allowances then for the variation in body language across the world? Because one thing means one thing in one country and another, it could be the complete opposite. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you, you have to, I would say more than just making allowances, you have to acknowledge that the cultural variance is so significant that all, the best you can do with body language is just treat it as a single data point, not as a decision point, but as a data point, right? So this person is exhibiting this behavior. They might be lying. It's one data point and you have to pair it with five or seven other data points before you reach a conclusion. How are you doing, Andrew? Hey, I'm good, Andrew. How are you? I am well, thank you. What a great name that you have. The first <laughs> I was going to say it's going to get old, man, if we keep uh, if we keep volleying the first name back and forth. Which of us gets to go by hey. the middle name now? Well, the problem is a certain prince has got our name, and I think it's lost a lot of value now, hasn't it? Well, I'm from the United States, so princes in general don't carry much value for us. No, but even less than normal. Plus, Americans love the royal family. Come on. That's true. There's, uh, Americans have this weird obsession with celebrity gossip. So you guys in the UK just make that too easy for us. That's not just you guys. I think that's the whole world, isn't it? Like, really like, a, <laughs> like a bit of gossip. Tell me a little bit before we go into, we're going to go into Assange and all that stuff. Tell me a little bit about your background, about you. Where are you? Where are you talking to us from today? Yeah, I'm actually in Florida. I'm based out of Florida. I moved from city to city. Um, I am a former covert CIA intelligence officer. I'm the founder of the first ever spy digital training platform. It's called everydayspy.com. Uh, and from that platform, we get to serve everyday people uh, and teach them spy skills that they can use for an edge in everyday life. But we also serve uh, governments and corporations. So that keeps us on the move pretty often. Okay, I want to know more about this because obviously I get information about everyone. It's a lot of the questions I've got to ask you about Assange. I want to know a little bit more about Everyday Spy because that sounds really, really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's the whole company is based on the fact that when my wife and I are both former covert CIA officers and before CIA found us, we were just everyday people. My wife went to a state school. She was working in a nonprofit. I was in the military. I was, I was a lackluster military officer. As you can see, I didn't really maintain any of that uh, military discipline when I left. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, uh, you don't look, don't look it, do you? It's the hair, isn't it? That's what it, and the if beard you were like shaved and, head, yeah. yeah, if you were shaved head, I'd be like, but that's what you should look like as a spy, right? You should look like you don't look like you're the spy. Exactly right. You, as a spy, in real life, spies don't look like James Bond because James Bond is a heartthrob. If you sent a, a spy heartthrob out into the world, mm -hmm. he'd get shot or captured, right? Yeah. If if Sidney uh, Briscoe went out there, yeah, that's why you're not a spy. <laughs> 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 if looks could get you killed. <laughs> 
yeah. no but yeah continue yeah oh god i gotta know all about this stuff so that's amazing so everyday spy what what so what does someone come on your website they're going to everyday spy what they live like a spy so what is it it's like a course and they go on it and you just teach us how to how to spy so essentially uh the premise here is that cia doesn't look for superhumans and then turn them into spies cia looks for everyday people who have a specific superpower that they need at the time and then they just teach them spy skills on top of that. So, for example, for everybody listening, I actually have a quiz that I've got launched, like teed up, and I haven't launched it publicly yet. But you guys can all get kind of a teaser if you want to do it. If you go to everydayspy.com forward slash quiz, everydayspy.com forward slash quiz, you're going to get invited into this kind of you know beta testing quiz that I created that's designed to show you your own spy superpower. So if MI6 or CIA or Mossad tapped you on the shoulder tomorrow, this, your spy superpower would be the thing they're looking for. And then oh. once they let you in, they would teach you everything else that you need to know. All the shooting, all the driving, all the fast, you know, the, the boat racing and the horse riding and the archery, all that stuff comes after they bring you in because of your own natural talent. That's what Everyday Spy is about. It's about it's about showing people what their spy superpower is and then helping them use that to get an unfair advantage in business, in relationships, in life. It's a ton of fun, dude, because I get to be a spy every day, only now I'm, my life's not at risk. So it's a good deal. Ah, that's so cool. What was the, What's the coolest stuff you did as a spy? What kind of stuff were you doing? Uh, the coolest stuff is stuff I can't really talk about. It's all still wow. kept confidential and classified, right? But uh, but I was ambiguously brown, which meant I could look Pakistani on Monday, and I could look Jordanian on Tuesday, and I could look Honduran on Wednesday. So I ended up being kind of um, I, I ended up being the guy that got to go to all the shitholes of the world because because brown people blend in in all the places where there is no money where there is no fame and there is no infrastructure so that was where i spent most of my time doing america's dirty work in very dirty places ah, it's, it's an advantage being a minority you see no i'm just kidding but uh the bustamante you must so is that a bit of spanish un poco de español como es tu español si 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 un poco un poco so the, the my bustamante comes from venezuela yeah. Uh, even though Bustamante is very popular in Italy, it's very popular in Latin America, but it's also super popular in the Philippines. If anybody out there is Filipino, they know uh, you've got a huge contingent of, of Latino names in the Philippines. That's interesting. Yeah, well, they, they, there's a whole Spanish history there, I think, wasn't there? Oh, yeah. wow. So you had all this stuff. You were going around the world and, and just as an everyday first person, I guess. Were you scared doing all this stuff? Well, one of the first things that CIA teaches you how to do, and similarly, one of the first things that I teach you how to do when you go through everyday spy training uh, is how to understand fear, right? So let me just give you a real quick breakdown, Andrew. Fear is actually not a present state emotion. You can't ever be afraid of the current moment. In the current moment, you're always reacting. So fear is actually a future tense state. You're always afraid of what could happen or what might happen. You're never afraid in the moment. So if you've ever had like a dog snarl at you, you're afraid of the dog. Like it, maybe it's gonna bite you. But once a dog actually bites you, your cognitive brain focuses on getting that dog off of you. You're not afraid anymore. Now you're in reaction mode. So CIA gives us a much more comprehensive tool set to break down how that works so that we can essentially stave off, push off fear further and further so that we can we can operate in a 
in like a time bubble that's free of, uh, of emotion and stress induced by fear. Wow. So let's say you're off in Honduras or whatever. Uh, and I guess you're, I, I, you know what, I don't even want to stereotype what it might be in those countries because it's not fair on the people from those countries, but you're doing something scary and you're standing there and you're getting all jittery and your legs are turning to jelly, but you're saying fear is just an abstract notion about the future <laughs> and I'm fine. And it was all right. <laughs> I mean, that's what a self-help book would tell you, right? Instead, <laughs> instead, what we're doing is, you know, we're we're facing down across this across a street, right, or on the same mm -hmm. side of a village from human traffickers or drug traffickers. Cartels love to work in Honduras, uh, sure. and they've got all these weapons trained on you, and you're sitting there with your little team of four or five. You're outnumbered five to one. This would be where most people would start getting jittery and shaky, and legs turn to jelly what we're trained to do is focus instead on not abstracts, but on actual hard facts. So for example, I know that on the range, I've trained putting thousands of rounds on a small three inch target. The cartel uh, thugs on the other side of me, they've probably never shot a thousand rounds in their entire existence, let alone trained it on a three inch target with high accuracy. I know I'm coming into this gunfight well rested, high with good calories, with you know, six guys that I've trained with for the last six months. They're coming into this gunfight, probably a little bit hungover. They probably had four prostitutes with them last night. They didn't get a good night's rest. So all of a sudden you can see how the, the true empirical evidence shows who's got the, the higher probability of success. Yes, they may have more people, but more people doesn't always mean greater success, uh, better training, better experience, better fear management, or what we call risk tolerance. All of those things are really what make the difference uh, in, in true life or death situations. I was once face to face with an exorcist that I thought was going to kill me because he locked me in a room with him and his cronies in Argentina. And I just remember thinking, God, I don't I know I shouldn't be scared because they probably won't kill me, but they might because it was out in the middle of nowhere when I was and legs just jelly. And I thought this is evolutionarily unhelpful because the flight or flight, you fight or flight, and it was just freeze. And because I couldn't run on those legs, but I guess, and, and I'm an everyday person, but maybe that means I couldn't be a spy. No, so what you actually were experiencing was something different. So, so fight or flight is the initial instinct that happens whenever a threat is posed. So, bef long before you were put into a room and they closed the door, your fight or flight instinct set in. Long before that, what ended up happening was after they moved you into the room, then they took physical control of your environment. Once you have physical control of your environment, your, your mind actually goes into an automatic compliance mode. And that compliance is, is evolutionarily helpful. And that's why your legs turn to jelly and your arms get weak and you just start getting kind of faint. Your brain is actually starting to conserve resources so that you can plan an eventual escape. So consider it like, Think about cavemen. If a saber-toothed tiger reached out and captured a caveman and grabbed him by the leg and dragged him into his cave, how is that caveman going to survive? Is he going to survive by immediately like trying to run out of the cave? No. The saber-toothed tiger is going to bite his other leg, drag his ass back in again, right? It's going to claw on him a little bit. You see it all the time uh, with people in the wilderness. They'll get mauled by a bear. When they're being mauled, their body shuts down because the body knows you've got to go into compliance mode so that the predator doesn't see you as a threat. Once the predator mm -hmm. sees you as willing, compliant prey, then it ignores you. It sets you aside to, to munch on later. It's got other things it has to worry about. 
usually in, when a when a predator takes down prey, there are other predators and scavengers who come to try to attack that prey. So the, the predator has other things distracting it. So your body put you in compliance mode so that you could come up with a better plan to escape. My plan was just going, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. I wasn't saying the wrong thing. I didn't really, I wasn't saying that you were having an affair with that woman that you exercised. And The spirit of Christ compels me. The spirit of Christ compels me. <laughs> he was a real piece of work, that guy. I was reading today about bears because... Uh, because I was investigating for another story, uh, a libertarian village in New Hampshire where they all like said no more taxes and no more like outside interference. But then the bears got too friendly and then everyone was feeding the bears and then they didn't have any like money from taxes to get some sort of bear control. And it was like eating all their kittens and, and attacking them in their homes and stuff. And then I read that. Um, what is it most bears you can do what you said which is just like stay still but a yep. black bear i think it was or it, or maybe it was the grizzly or maybe it, something like that then you're not <laughs> it's quite important to know which one actually because if it's one of them stay still and pretend you're dead and if it's the other one like be big or run away yeah well and that's the fight or flight right it's it's consider every attack in two stages there's when the threat presents itself you've got the first level of response and then when the threat overruns you, you have a different response. So in every bear instance, once that bear has sunk its teeth into your shoulder or your thigh and it starts dragging you home, you go compliant. Whether it's a black bear, a brown bear, or a polar bear, you go compliant. But when you're face-to-face -face with a black bear, you make a big scene, right? When you're face-to-face mm -hmm. -face with a brown bear or a grizzly bear, you you back away and you you give it its territory. But yeah, that's a really, right. oh, sorry. That's a really interesting point because obviously there was that tragic buffalo shooting the other day and I ended up seeing footage of it, which I shouldn't have seen, but someone sent me. Isn't that a shame, like, man? That's a shame. It was the most horrible thing. I And and I try not to watch those things, but the person who sent it to me didn't say what it was. And I started clicking it and before I knew I'd seen it and it stays in my head. It was the most horrible thing. But the people who were being a gun aimed at them didn't do like in the movies with the screaming and running. They, they completely stayed still and yep. that was it and they were gone. I couldn't believe yeah. it. It was the saddest thing to watch. Yeah. So we teach, uh, one of the things that I teach and one of the things that CIA teaches us is the five different levels of situational awareness. And everybody knows of situational awareness. That's like a common term. Most people only know it as law enforcement teaches it. Police teach three layer, three layers of, of uh, situational awareness. Spies and inter intelligence professionals, we learn five levels. But the, and I'm not going to bore you with all five levels. What you saw in that shooting was people getting trapped in what's known as the red level. We call it red, you're dead. Red is deer in the headlights. Red is frozen, fight or flight, right? Right. You have fight or flight that happens first, and then you find yourself not in control of your environment. Once you are out of control of your environment, human compliance takes over. Your instinctive compliance takes over. That's why you see deers jump in the road and just freeze. They're going compliant. Whatever that thing is, it's in my place, it's in my space, I can't get away, so I'm just going to do whatever it tells me to do. Um, and it's a total shame, man. Mass shooters, they, they thrive on the fact that when they make an attack, people panic. And that panic either turns into a run instinct where they run away or a freeze instinct where they hold still. Um, and that's just, it is a terrible thing. But I will also say, Andrew, that for anybody who had to watch or anybody who got a few minutes of that of that live stream from the shooting in Buffalo, the most interesting part to watch is actually the first few minutes, the first two to four minutes. 
because before he goes into the grocery store and starts shooting people, he's he's driving around with you in his car, right? He's talking to you, he's pumping himself up, he's psyching himself up before he goes in to shoot anyone. That is so powerfully important to understand because you see how untrained shooters, how untrained threats behave. He's shaky, he's jittery, He's very clearly like suffering from tunnel vision because he can't, he's, he's like pulling into and out of different parking spots in the, in the parking lot. This is all very telltale behavior. This is what Secret Service specializes in, seeing this telltale behavior before someone starts shooting. Um, and it's really powerful to understand that you actually have an advantage over those human threats when you know how to pick up those telltale behaviors. Man, that is fascinating. Well, you know, if people do end up watching it, that yeah probably stick with just that bit and that does sound really really interesting um i want to move on to a totally different subject just about julian assange uh, and your thoughts uh, on sean's channel we've had a lot of people on to talk about julian and often it's a very very pro julian side uh, but obviously it's a incredibly complex uh, thing and obviously i want to ask from your point of view having you know worked in 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 these kinds of operations you know what is your view on this yeah, so Julian Assange, I mean, he's a maverick, right? There was nobody like Julian Assange before he existed. He was the first. History doesn't usually smile kindly on people who are the first. Look at what they did to Napoleon, right? Look at what they did to, uh, to Hitler. Look at what they've done to all sorts of bad guys who did all sorts of like really intelligent things that the rest of us have copied. Who doesn't want to be as charismatic as Hitler? Everybody wants to learn. There are business schools who try to teach you how to be as influential and charismatic as Hitler was, right? And that all these bad guys in history, they get a bad rap. And even the mavericks in industry, when was the last time you heard somebody say something good about Rockefeller? When was the last time you heard someone say something good about Kennedy? People don't say good things about mavericks. Julian Assange was the first one that found a way to marry secrets in the digital public domain. And he put those two things together. Now, as a result, everybody's trying to scramble for what did he do right and what did he do wrong and what rights are he in? Is, is it human rights that he's entitled to? Is it human rights that he violated? Um, does he fall under jurisdiction of any given country? And then it's it's a big mess, man. Um, and that's just the nature of of his specific case because he was on the leading edge of this. He did, in fact, give secrets that impacted national security away to hostile threats. For sure he did that. And he did it in the best interest of transparency and open information, but that doesn't negate the fact that he did something that is illegal to some country in the world. If you or I do something that's illegal, we run the risk of being extradited to that country. It's just, the, it is the way that the globalized world works. It's just unfortunate mm -hmm. that the globalized world came after the maverick had learned how to do what he does best, you know. Just, I mean, the Hitler thing's different because he killed lots of people, didn't he? It, in terms of morality, just, just, you know, you're not equating them morally, are you? Just to well, it's yeah, I'm not, I'm not equating them in terms of headcount, um, but for sure, Julian Assange's the fact that he's given secrets away to on a national platform. There have been people who have been killed because of Assange, for sure. Russia kills people in in secret all the time. China kills people in secret constantly right there's the developing countries of the world your egypt's your uh your saudi arabia's your iran's your even all of your stands uzbekistan and Turkestan. like these countries all they they sweep up a mess very quietly it's not like the uk and the us where everything we do 
has to be, you know, is it runs the risk of being put on the open press. So when Assange, you know, spills a secret about a secret UK or a secret US operation that's happening in Honduras, right? People get killed. We just don't know who those people are. So yes, it's not on the scale of someone like Hitler. Hitler was a maverick in his own way. But what my point is just Julian Assange did something nobody else had ever done before. And now we don't, we have to find a way to categorize that and and file that Mm. in our human existence. We've got people commenting saying things like false CIA propaganda and stuff like that. But I think Andrew makes a, a really good point. I mean, look, firstly, we do, we've had a lot of people on about Assange to say the sort of the opposite things. So you, you know, we have to hear both sides. We have to hear different views. And the other thing is that, um, you know, you talk about Honduras, of, of course, you know, I mean, that could have been you. So that's obviously, you know, that we've got to remember there are humans, there are people at stake. And even if you do still think, okay, well, we still need that press freedom and all that kind of thing. You know, you wouldn't like it if it was your daughter or your son who gets killed because of this kind of thing. Now, what a lot of people say when I say this usually is, well, there's no evidence that anyone has been hurt from what Assange did. Uh, Is that true that there's no evidence anyone's been harmed? And is that not the point anyway? Yeah, I would say that it's kind of not the point, but I would also say that any evidence that's out there is not in the public domain. Here's here's something that I'm sure is going to piss off your audience, Andrew, and that's okay because they're your audience, not mine. If they don't like me, they can piss off. Sean's audience. Sean's Sean's audience. audience. Yeah, I got I got to toe the I got to toe the line. I toe the line a little bit. Make sure they stay happy with me. No, they're the vast vast majority are extremely lovely people, and but they got their views. You know, plurality of opinion. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and people can love Sean and I want them to keep following Sean. Sean's a great dude, right? Yeah. I am not Sean. I come from a world where I have seen the importance of keeping secrets away from everyday people. Like here's, here's the funny thing about secrets. Do you feel like you should be entitled to keep your own secrets, Andrew? I'm writing a book about secrets, the psychology of secrets. This is great. Do I feel that I should be entitled to keep my own secrets? Yes. So then why do you expect, but you also feel entitled that other people should not keep secrets from you? The government. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the people I'm giving my taxes to. Give me, just give me your secrets. So what's interesting is those are also the people that you're entrusting with your protection, right? Here, let me, let me if, you'll, ah. if you'll bear with me for just a second, right? Hopefully this oh, works. Good. On, yeah, hopefully this works on screen. I don't know. This is okay, this is a triangle. We a love tri- triangles. Some, some some people get it on audio, so just make sure you're saying just they only hear the audio version. Just make sure you're describing everything. Yeah, 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 absolutely. CIA loves triangles because triangles are like the one of the most stable you know shapes in all of history. This is actually the triangle that represents social order. In the bottom third of the triangle, that's what happened before people organized themselves into tribes. Right. It was me and I lived in a tent that I built and you lived in a tent where you lived. And if I caught a deer, I didn't share my deer with you. And if you if you gathered berries, you didn't share your berries with me. Right. That's all of this bottom part of the triangle. What ended up happening is that people got smart and I realized I'm pretty good at hunting deer. And you realize that you're really good at finding all the best you know, plants and all the safest medicines out there. And I was like, hey, I'll trade you some deer if you'll give me some medicine. That moved us into the second phase of the triangle. It moved us into the middle of the triangle. This is where we had tribal behavior. Tribal behavior means that I gave up some of my resources to get some of your resources, but you and I were both producing resources. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. This is a work for our sponsor. 
Then it's that time of the year when people are stuffing themselves with food and the sun's not out and vitamin deficiencies occur. You said that you were on some vitamins, but you were overdosing yourself. I honestly was taking up to 10 tablets a day, not knowing if they were giving me any health benefits at all. So now finding Vital has proved absolutely wonders for me. Fill in a short online consultation about your diet, health goals and lifestyle and Vital will create a tailored made pack just for you. To get a free two week trial of personalized vitamins, head to vitl.com and use the code Sean, S-H-A-U-N at checkout. Link is in the description box below this video. So Jen, how easy is the Vital website to use? So with a few simple steps, it can tell you what you are lacking in nutrients. So for me, it was my skin, sleep, and stress. <laughs> so mm. now after four days of use, I'm already seeing an improvement. So well done, Vital. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. Now back to the podcast. The third step in this evolutionary existence for society is the top of the triangle. Now, it's at the top of the triangle where we start having people who bring nothing. They bring no tangible resource to the table, but we give them the power to govern us. We give them the power to govern our resources so that then we get the efficiency of one person or one small organization doling out all the resources. Because when we lived in the tribal days, there was no police. When we were living in tribes, there was no infrastructure to support internet or fresh water or power. It was only when we organized into societies, the top center, the top of that triangle, that we said, hey, we'll start putting our money and we'll put our resources into the government in exchange for power and water and emergency services and police and public hospitals. What nobody wants to, what nobody understands is that as you go up in that triangle, from the bottom to tribalism and from tribalism into what's known as the statehood, while you go up, you're exchanging personal freedom in exchange for civic benefit. If you don't like to trade your personal freedom in exchange for civic benefit, you can go back down the triangle. You can go live in Africa and hunt for your own wildebeest and find your own clean water and nobody's yeah. going to tell you what to do. But and if you, you want to live off... So, yeah. But if bears. you want, yeah, you got bears, you got snakes, you got to worry about. But if you want all of the benefits of society, you have to give up some of your personal freedoms. And one of the big freedoms you're going to give up is access to secrets because your government's going to do what they think is in your best interest, because that's what you've given them the power to do. Make decisions without asking you. Mm. And so you're, that's a really fascinating explanation. Uh, but it, it feels you're not you're not moralizing. You're not you're not giving a moral on it. It's just this is what it is. Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? It's just a thing. It's just a thing. This is, it's like engineering. It's like science, right? There's a reason it's called social science, right? The social sciences exist. Social studies exist because there is a structure to it. Um, all societies are is a macro level view of how a single human organism lives, right? We have immune systems and we have cardiovascular systems and nervous systems and we prioritize some parts of our, of our existence over other parts. Some people give up exercise, but they'll never give up coffee, right? It's the same way with our government. Our government is just a manifestation of the society that it represents. So if we have a, a society that chooses to, to fight back and wants secrets to be exposed, it's on us to use our civic power 
to replace the existing government with a government that represents us. But if you don't, mm. if you don't participate in that process, then you're going to get stuck with whatever government is reflective of the people who are participating. That's so. That's the point, then, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people um, are putting in the in the in the chat. You know, is Andrew being hypnotized by this or whatever? Uh, but I think, look, if you care that much about the government keeping secrets from you, then you've just got to vote with your feet. And I guess I guess that would that would imply that the majority are quite happy with it if it's what's good for them. You just nailed it, right? And that's what all the little, all the people who are trying to snipe me in comments and all the people who talk shit about me, you know, in every interview I do, the truth is they're a bunch of cowards because if they weren't <laughs> cowards, they would vote with their feet. If you don't like being a United States, if you think the U.S. is out of control, if you think if you're an American citizen and you think your rights are being violated, get out. You have a passport that will let you go to any country in the world and most countries of the world, as proven by many of our, of our defectors from the United States, will gladly welcome an American citizen to become a new resident of whatever, whether that's the Bahamas or Angola. It doesn't really matter. But if you want to sit on your couch and bitch about secrets that are being kept from you, then all that makes you is a little whiny bitch. It doesn't mean that you're doing anything to change anything. So it, it's, it's heartbreaking, but the truth is that the world is driven by the top 2% of people who take action. Not the top two percent of people who make money, just the top two percent of people who take action. Yeah, no, that is that is the thing, and I think sometimes people find it very hard when they're watching. When there's a lot of people watching as well, because of course, you know, you're just the people who are having a go at you. It's a, it's a small percentage of the huge amount who are just sort of watching and and I guess I guess complying, complying, and they're going, well, I suppose <laughs> I don't mind the secrets and stuff like that. I think that um, it's hard for them sometimes to understand that you, I don't think you've really given a moral view. You've not said, oh, and thank God they are keeping the secret. You know, it's just like, hey, that's what the thing is. It is that thing. Right. You can leave. This is how the third part of the triangle is. We, we've got uh, um, only like a minute or two. We've already told people about everydayspy.com slash quiz. Can they follow you on Twitter or somewhere? Is there somewhere else you'd like them to go? Yeah, absolutely. You can follow me anywhere. If you look up at Everyday Spy, that's my handle. So feel free to blow up my handle and, and hate on me there. Or uh, I've also got a very popular iTunes podcast. I've got a top 100 podcast called the Everyday Espionage Podcast. Uh, and you can find me there. You can listen to me there and you can leave me a zero star review if you want to blow me up there. But otherwise, you'll see that there's quite a few people out there who, <laughs> who understand the value of seeing things for what they really are instead of seeing things for how they feel they should be fascinating thank you so much my fellow andrew have a lovely day and uh yeah thanks for coming on my pleasure man take care andrew you too hey so if you're enjoying this podcast william's book is available worldwide son of the cali cartel it is mind-blowing it's on Amazon as an ebook, audio book, and the paperback. And you saw the Cali cartel as represented in Narcos. A lot of that was BS. William lays it down what really happened. His dad was one of the leaders of the biggest coke cartel in the world at that time. And when his dad went to prison, William was running it. And it starts out with the assassination attempt on William where he gets shot up and his friends die. So again, check out William's book, Son of the Cali Cartel, 
Links will be in the description box below this video on the YouTube version. Cheers. Thank <laughs> you.